Time for the Tom Sumner Program. The Tom Sumner Program is a live variety show with music, comedy and special guest interviews every Monday through Friday. Oh, it's always a pleasure to be with you, John. You know that. Yay, Tom! I love it in Flint! You're very astute, Tom. Easy question. I'll debate Andy Dillon on your show. Well, uh, that's a very good question. Uh, Hello, darling. This is Elvira, Mistress of the Dark, with Tom Sumner. I'm all right, Tom. How are you? Hey, lucky day, Mr. Sam. Ciao, Tom. How are you today? That's a good question. <laughs> Hi, this is actor, comedian, Jonah Pody, and you're listening to the Tom Snyder, uh, Tom Smothers. Uh, I mean, I'm sorry, what's his name? Oh, Sumner. The Tom Sumner Program. Good morning, Tom. How are you doing? Hey, at least I got the Tom part right. Stay tuned, because it's on now. The Tom Sumner Program. COVID-19 is the biggest health crisis in our lifetime. We're working around the clock with doctors and hospitals to stop it, but we need your help. Even if you don't feel sick, you could be carrying it. And just one person with the virus can infect another 40, who then infect thousands more. So I've issued an executive order requiring everyone to stay home to help limit the spread of the virus. Let's protect the people we love. Stay home and stay safe. Hi, this is Gretchen Whitmer, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. And welcome back, everybody, as we roll into the second hour of our three-hour tour known as the Tom Sumner Program. My guest this hour is the author of a new book. Uh, This is going to be fascinating. He's uh, worked as an editor for many years at CBS News. He's contributed to or written a number of books, but his new book, Not a Gentleman's Work, is the name of it. It is uh, the untold story of a gruesome murder at sea and the long road to truth. Uh, Gerard Capel is his name. He joins me by phone. Gerard, welcome to the show. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Um, now, the, f- the first thing, this is a fascinating story. It's uh, considered uh, the most gruesome nautical uh, what homicide or crime uh, what was what was the word uh, oh the most notorious murder in american nautical history um, yep and and it's from what the, the middle 1800s or no the end of the 1800s yep j- 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 just at the tail end 1896 july of 1896 um is is this now this is based on a true story um, and when I, when I say based on a true story, that makes it sound like it's uh, a novel or historical fiction. How would you describe the the particular medium that this this book sets up? Oh no, this is a true story. This is uh, it, it is very true that that twelve people went to sea on a ship headed from Boston to Buenos Aires with a load of lumber on a sailing ship, a three-masted sailing ship, and only nine of them returned. Um, and uh, the other three returned also, but, but they were dead, uh, pretty pretty horribly mutilated by the ship's axe. And, so, true story. And, and it has to be one of the nine. Yep, has to be one of the nine. There was in, Nobody flew in and flew out. And it wasn't done by, um, you know, alien life forms. 
as best I know. And <laughs> you watch. I mean, an, I wasn't you there, watch so, ancient you know. aliens too. I take it. Excuse me. <laughs> there's there's a television show called Ancient Aliens. Oh, okay. Talking about uh, alien abductions in the 17 and 1800s, based on diary accounts and so on. Oh, okay. Um, but well, I didn't investigate that part. I but, didn't get, investigate that possibility. Uh, but let, but let's t- let's talk about the uh, the actual possibilities. You got nine people left, and the the presumption would be that one committed the crime. Doesn't that make the other eight witnesses? Not on a, a sailing ship at night. Two o'clock in the morning is when these uh, three people were. Uh, hacked to death with an axe, and um, especially uh, there were two cabins on the boat, the forward cabin where the regular crew slept, and the aft cabin where only five people slept, three of whom were were the dead people. So, um, and most of the crew members never went into that aft cabin. That was just a place they didn't go. So, when you when you uh, start to uh, count off the numbers, there are really only three people who possibly could have done it, and and that was the um, well we should say it was the, the dead people were the captain uh, Charles Nash from Maine. He built the ship, also launched it in 1890, and this happened in 1896. He did many of the voyages on the ship. Um, his wife, Laura Nash, also from the same uh, Maine town, Harrington, Maine. Um, and it's not infrequent then that, uh, that wives of uh, captain husbands uh, went to sea with them, especially uh, those wives who didn't have any children, as this couple did not. Uh, he was 42, she was 39. And uh, the other dead person... Uh, is August Blomberg, uh, who was a Russian Finn, and uh, he was the second mate. So those three, those are the three dead people uh, in the aft cabin. And the other two people who who uh, slept there and took their meals there were the first mate. Uh, his name was Thomas Bram, and a passenger named Lester Hawthorne Monks from Boston, or just outside Boston. He was 20 years old. He was no relation to uh, Nathaniel Hawthorne, if anyone is putting Boston and Hawthorne together. (laughs) And um, as I said, he was 20 years old. And why was he on the ship? Well, his parents had put him there because they were sick and tired of him. Uh, He had just been thrown out of Harvard for uh, excessive for inexcessive studies and excessive drinking. Uh, he failed all his courses, and uh, they were uh, uh, didn't want really much to do with him for a while. So they put, they put him on this ship and then expected that he would not come back right away. It was a two- to three-month voyage down to South America. They expected he would go to Europe and not bother them for a good, good while. So in any case... Um, those are the people who slept in the aft cabin. Uh, two of those people were possibly the killer, uh, Thomas Bram, the first mate who was on deck at the time, and, uh, and Monks, who was asleep in the cabin at the time of the killings. In fact, 
of the um, five people who uh, regularly slept in the aft cabin, um, three were killed. Bram was on deck, and Lester Monks was inexplicably untouched by the killings. There were four people asleep in the cabin at the time, and uh, Monks was the one person who was untouched. And then there was a third possibility of a killer, which is one of the crewmen who happened to be steering the boat at the time. The helm was after the aft cabin. And uh, it was, uh, in order for him to have done the killings, he would have had to have lashed the wheel. The ship was under sail, and there were ropes at the wheel to lash it. Those ropes were generally only used when the ship was uh, at anchor or or in a dock or otherwise uh, not moving. And uh, he would have had to lash the wheel, got down into the aft cabin, which he had never been in before, in the middle of the night, 2 o'clock in the morning, uh, gone, found the axe, which he had no idea, he had no idea where it was, uh, murdered the three people, captain, wife, second mate, uh, left Lester Monks alone, and then gone back up on deck and retook, retaken the wheel without the ship having gone off course or anybody uh, having noticed that he was not at the wheel, including Thomas Bram, who was at the uh, on watch in, in the middle of the ship, and all he had to do was look aft and see that there was nobody steering the boat. So those are the three um, people who are remotely likable, uh, likely to have done the killing, the only three people who possibly could have done the killing. How is it that, now you're saying that Monks was in the same cabin with the three that were murdered by an axe? How, how does somebody sleep through that? Well, it's a good question. <laughs> I, I, I mean, it, it, it just comes to me. There's there's four people in a row, in a, in a room, three yeah. end up dead by an axe, the axe is laying there, and there's one person untouched. It, it seems like, uh, you know, fade to black. Well, I, I wouldn't disagree with you. Um, the aft cabin um, was laid out as uh, there was a sort of central area, and that's where the, the dining table was. And then there were small rooms off it. And um, each of the people who slept in that cabin, the five people, had their own sleeping quarters, including, for some reason, uh, the captain and his wife. They slept separately. Uh, have never been able to parse that out exactly, but uh, in any case, they slept separately. And in fact, Lester Monks had the room right in between them. Um, in any case, yeah. So, um, yeah. Well, I'm, I'm, what was your question? I, I was just saying, why why wouldn't it be case closed? This oh, yeah, was the right. only guy who had yeah. opportunity. I don't know about motive, but. You know, he yeah, was in yeah. proximity. He had access to the weapon. Yeah. Um, you know, he yeah. doesn't well, seem like something he could have slept through. So at the very least, if someone else had come in there yep. and done this, he would have heard or seen them. Uh, yes. I mean, in fact, he slept within a couple of feet of, of the captain who was hit with seven axe blows, uh, eight axe blows to the head. His head was entirely disfigured. Uh, um, presumably that does not happen quietly. Um, yet, for some reason, uh, he was not um, 
either closely scrutinized or or heavily suspected. Uh, it was he that discovered, quote-unquote, the, um, the murders. He said that he heard a, he was asleep. He heard a scream. That woke him up. He took his gun. He had a pistol, which he lied about saying uh, he had acquired. He said he had acquired it on a whim. Initially, he said this when they all got back to shore. But that turned out to be a lie. In fact, his uncle had given it to him. Um, he said he took his, woke up, loaded his pistol, and uh, went to the nearest cabin to him, which was uh, Charles Nash, the captain's, um, felt his um, uh, his head, his shoulder, actually, his up, his, around his neck area is what... Uh, um, Lester Monks later said, found that it was sweaty. In fact, it was covered in blood, but he said it was sweaty. Uh, and then he thought, since the captain was only sweaty, that he must have uh, fallen off his bed. And uh, instead of simply helping him up onto his bed or making further investigation, uh, Lester Monks went to find the wife, who was two cabins away. And when he got to the, he said to the room, uh, to the door of her room, he said he saw in the relative darkness of the cabin at 2 o'clock in the morning um, bloodstains on her bed, pools of blood on her the end of her bed. He couldn't see her because her, her bed was tucked behind the door to her cabin. But he said at the foot of the bed he saw some bloodstains. And um, he said famously uh, that he then realized that the screams meant something, meant something. And again, <laughs> again, instead of seeing what they meant, he simply went up on deck and found the first mate. It doesn't make much sense. However, he was never uh, closely suspected. In fact, he was considered something of a hero for having discovered the murders, kept his head, and then... Um, uh, largely been responsible for getting the ship back to uh, port initially to Halifax in Nova Scotia, 750 miles from where the uh, the murders took place. And so the, the boat made it to Buenos Aires, and this was... Uh, no, 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 it didn't get to Buenos Aires. Oh, no. They, no, 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 they turned around. Well, I mean, after the captain is dead and the second mate is dead with an axe, uh, and the wife also, um, they were, uh, let's see, they were, 50, they were 1,500 miles from Brazil, much further, to, uh, you know, much further than that to go to uh, Argentina. They considered that initially because it was, had favorable winds. And then they decided, no, that the quickest land to get to, given the wind conditions, was Halifax. And so they went up to uh, Halifax and got there uh, about seven days after the discovery of the killings, which was, and the killings themselves are seven days after they had left Boston. Yeah. Now, what were, oh, shoot, I've got to take a break here, Gerard. Okay. Can, we, can we dig into this some more? Can you stick around? Sure. Great. Sure. My guest is Gerard Capel. He is the uh, author of a book we're talking about called Not a Gentleman's Work, and we'll have more after we let our broadcast partners squeeze in a little bit.
Everybody's doing a brand new dance now. Hi, this is Mark Farner, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. I'm Julie Lopez with Crime Stoppers. Have you ever wondered what to do if you have information about a crime or the whereabouts of a felony fugitive and you want the police to know but you need to remain anonymous? Well, here's what you can do. You can go to p3tips.com or download the mobile app. You can go to Crime Stoppers of Flint and Genesee County's Facebook page and click on the Leave an Anonymous Tip tab, or you can call 1-800-422-JAIL. All methods are anonymous, and if your help leads to a felony arrest, you may be eligible for a cash reward. Remember, your voice matters. Hi, I'm Dr. Jonay Caldoun. We know that COVID-19 is spreading rapidly across Michigan right now. The most important thing people can do to protect themselves is social distancing. That means unless you are a critical infrastructure worker or going out to get food or medicine for your home, you should be staying at home. Stay home, stay safe, save lives. Most of the music you hear on the Tom Sumner program is provided by local artists. Tune in Fridays at 11 for live music and conversation with some of the area's most talented singers, songwriters, and performers. Hi, this is Greg Nagy. Hey, this is Hoppa. Hi, this is Joe Bye from the Blue Lions. Hi, this is Alexander Zondrick. Hi, this is Mark Farner. This is Maurice Davis. Hi, this is Rochelle Ray. Hi there, folks. This is Sweet Willie T. This is Steve from the Nashville office. I'm Gwen Pennyman Hemphill. Tom Sumner Program, celebrating the rich talent pool from Flint, Genesee County, and throughout Michigan. In just a little while, you folks are going to have the pleasure not only hearing the songs of the star of the program and all, but you're also going to have the pleasure of hearing and watching and seeing in person the gentlemen and ladies who have been supplying the fine mu- music behind the curtain this evening. It's a wonderful orchestra. I love to hear them play. But and while you would possibly never even consider counting how many piece- pieces there are in the band, it so happens there are about, I think, 26, 27 members of the orchestra, the stage orchestra here. And the only thing is they used to play in Ho- Hollywood. And when they were there in Hollywood, California, there were a 65-piece o- orchestra. And when they were hired by the Ni- International Hotel to come here and play, they all got on a bu- on a bus... All 65 of them with their instruments and everything and headed out for Las Vegas. The only thing was, when they crossed the Nevada state line, they had fruit inspection, and this is all left. Here are some most happy fellas, the four lads for four. Standing on the corner, watching all the Fords go Thunderbirds kissing cousin Get in a Ford Get Ford a try So don't be standing 
This is Jill Stein, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Uh, my guest this hour is the author of a book called Not a Gentleman's Work, about a uh, gruesome, gruesome um, homicide that uh, took place aboard a ship uh, just in the, in the last uh, part of the 1800s, leading up to the beginning of the 20th century. Um, the untold story of a gruesome murder at sea and the long road to truth. Um, do you think you got to the end of the long road to, to truth? Uh, I think I got about 90% there. It, 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 I should say that I, there's no definitive conclusion. And uh, we were talking before the break about uh, Lester Monk's in detail. Um, he, as I think I mentioned, was never uh, um, closely suspected. In fact, uh, a couple of days after the uh, killings, uh, with the ship headed back toward Halifax, the uh, suspicion centered around the, um, the crewman uh, who was steering at the time, and we should mention his name, uh, his his. his formal name was Justice Leopold Westerberg. That's J-U-S-T-U-S, Leopold Westerberg. He was Swedish, as were three of the six uh, regular crew members. Um, he was known, though, as Charlie Brown, which was a uh, easier, le- less of a mouthful for, uh, for mates and captains to yell at him. Um, but he was the helmsman and he, at the time, and he was the guy that was at the as they made their way back to Halifax, or made their way to Halifax, uh, he was the guy that was suspected by the eight other survivors to have done it. And he was um, seized and chained to the base of one of the three masts of the ship. Um, And the ship continued on its way to Halifax, and then a day before they got to Halifax, um, Charlie Brown said to another crewman who passed on to Lester Monks and the other guy who was really leading their way back, that was the, uh, the steward, Jonathan Spencer. Those two were really the, guy, the, bo- the guys that got the boat back. Argu- arguably, Jonathan Spencer had more of a hand than Monks. But um, it was mentioned to Spencer that Charlie Brown claimed that while he was at the wheel, he had looked through a, uh, a, uh, a porthole, a window in the aft cabin, which is about four feet away from, from the wheel, mm-hmm. and seen through that window um, Thomas Bram with some sort of implement in his hand striking somebody. He couldn't see who it was. In fact, Charlie Brown who had never been in the aft cabin, suspected or uh, believed that the person in the aft cabin would have been Lester Monks, the, um, the passenger. In any case, based on that, the other seven people decided that, huh, well, okay, maybe Thomas Bram did this, the first mate, and they seized him and uh, 
chained him to one of the other masts of the ship. And so they arrived in Halifax with three dead bodies, two guys chained to different masts and, and seven survivors. One of them, well, some of them perhaps lying about um, the events that led to the chaining of, of the other two. And the fact that they landed in Halifax, would, that, would it have made any difference to the investigation if they'd ar- arrived back in Boston? Mm-hmm. Um, that's an interesting question. Um, probably not, except that uh, something important happened in Halifax. Um, uh, Charlie Brown and uh, the, the crewman, the, the, the guy who was steering at the time of the killings, and Thomas Bram, the first mate, both arrived essentially in custody. And um, at one point, a local detective in Halifax, um, who fancied himself uh, um, a great investigator of crimes, uh, had Thomas Bram brought to him, and Bram was shackled and naked, and this detective asked Bram some leading questions. He said, um, now listen here, Bram, uh, Charlie Brown says he saw you through the, uh, through the window. And Bram said, well, how could he have seen me? They're, 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 that's not possible, which is sort of a uh, um, perhaps indicative of some sort of guilt. But then he said, well, I had nothing to do with it. Um, you better talk to Charlie Bram, that uh, Charlie Brown. And that suggested that he didn't have anything to do with it. Um, but this detective who took the, this testimony from, uh, or the, the, who did the questioning of Bram in Halifax, was invited down eventually to the trial in Boston. And we should say that the trial in Boston was only of Thomas Bram after a few weeks and a couple of months it appeared to everyone that Thomas Bram was the likeliest killer, and he was the guy that was put on trial. Um, and this detective testified against Bram. He, he, he testified what Bram told him. And um, just to, to, to go into the importance of that, um, Bram was convicted, sentenced to death, which was the only... Uh, available penalty in a federal capital case, and this case did wind up immediately in federal circuit court um, because it was a crime at sea on an American ship, doesn't go to state court. And um, he had very good lawyers who uh, were undaunted by the uh, guilty verdict and and pending um, execution and appealed to the U.S. Supreme Court, and the U.S. Supreme Court uh, in um, 1897, justice moved much more quickly than than it does now, uh, decided that Bram's Fifth Amendment rights had been violated, and that in the relevant part is that uh, a um, person cannot be compelled in a criminal case to be a witness against himself. That's the essential part of the Fifth Amendment that, that bears on this case. and And that had to do with... Uh, the questioning by Bram in uh, in Halifax, and they reversed his conviction. It was the fir- just a little bit of Supreme Court history. It's the first time that the U.S. Supreme Court, in 
let's see, what, nearly two centuries, well, century and a half, had, no, 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 nearly two centuries, had, um, no, over two centuries, what am I saying, uh, in over two centuries had made a decision based on the Fifth Amendment. And eventually that decision in 1897 leads um, uh, about 70 years later to the very famous Miranda decision uh, in which, uh, and the Miranda warning, which means you have a, which gives defendants the right to remain silent. And so Bram was the first guy whose right to remain silent was at least recognized by the U.S. Supreme Court. The um, now of all these people on board, there there are. Um, they start out with twelve people. How much was crew, yeah. and how much was? Yeah. Well, well, let's split it up by cabins. Um, in the aft cabin were the captain, his wife, first mate, second mate, and Lester Monks. And in the forward cabin were uh, six regular crew members. That gets us up to um, 11. And the, um, the steward, uh, steward slash cook, uh, Jonathan Spencer. And um, Spencer, of the guys who uh, spent their off watches in the forward cabin, was the only one who ever went into the aft cabin. In his role as steward, he would um, uh, tidy up the cabin and also cook meals for the uh, residents of the aft cabin. And he had his stores, uh, his supplies, uh, in a room in the aft cabin. So he was the only guy that really went, really went all over the ship. I mean, none of the people in the aft cabin would uh, consider going into the uh, into the forward cabin was it, was that the normal complement of a boat making that kind of a voyage it seems like there'd be a lot <laughs> more people it doesn't seem like a lot of people does it it but, really doesn't but, yeah but that was fairly standard you know at any time in in a normal circumstance you just had four people on deck the um, the first mate was in charge of one watch the second mate was in charge of the other watch and there were three uh crewmen with them the, the mates would uh um would patrol essentially the middle of the ship uh one of the three crewmen would steer the ship and the other two would be posted forward uh looking for anything that uh, might um, get in the way of their their forward progress and which is why um so few of the people on board could possibly have been involved in the crime. Um, you know, three of them were asleep forward in, in the forward cabin, including the uh, plus the um, uh, the uh, the steward chef uh, Jonathan Spencer, and two others were way forward on the ship, looking forward, and uh, which left only. Uh, six people further aft, the first mate who was on deck, the one crewman who was steering, um, and the four people in the cabin, three of them murdered with an axe. So that leaves you only three people who possibly could have done it. Gerard, how did, how did this story get on your radar? I was thinking about um, 
writing a book about Joshua Slocum, who um, was the first guy to sail alone around the world. He did that from 1895 to 1898. Um, he was got famous while he was doing it and wrote a book about it called Sailing Alone Around the World. And it became a, a major... Uh, they didn't really have bestsellers then, but it was a very popular book and remains in print. You can still get it now. It's, it, it's out of uh, copyright, and there are numerous editions of it. But I was rereading his story, and it's a fascinating story and incredibly well written. Uh, and he was from the, the Boston area also. And um, he, he was questioned, actually the New York Times especially questioned him about how he could possibly have sailed his little boat. And his, his boat was only 37 feet. And we should say that the boat in, in the, uh, the case at hand, the Herbert Fuller, was uh, 175 feet or so. Um, but he, how his little boat uh, could sail alone around the world, he must, have had, he must have needed to sleep and eat and do other things. He couldn't steer the boat the whole time. And he explained how, uh, in an appendix to his book, how he could rig up the wheel of his boat to um, so the boat could sail itself. Rigged, it was based on the, the pressure, water pressure on, on the rudder and the pressure on the sails, etc. And he rigged it up so his boat could sail hundreds, if not thousands of miles without him ever touching the wheel. And in describing this, he said this was the uh, an issue in, uh, what, how did he write it? Something like the, the recent case in Boston. I don't ah. know what that meant, yes. But the, there was a footnote in, the, in one of the editions, in the, the Penguin edition, which are always, always the, the better editions of any popular story. Um, a footnote explained what he was talking about, and uh, briefly. And it said in that brief footnote that Thomas Bram had been uh, convicted of the crime and sent to prison for life. As it turns out, that isn't true. But in any case, uh, that interested me, and I switched gears and decided to look into this uh, into this uh, case. Did you did you ever find, or did the investigators ever find um, a motive like mutiny or yeah. something that preceded everybody onto the boat? Well, this is a curious thing uh, of the three possible killers. I mean, of the. Th- the three people who could have had anything to do with this. Um, there's no motive for any of them. The, the suspected or, or you know, most, um, if, if there was anything like a motive, it would have been for the, the guy who was steering, Charlie Brown, that he was nuts. Uh, and um, he had some incidents in his life Five years earlier, he had had a sort of deluded episode in a uh, rooming house in Sweden, where he was from, uh, and um, excuse me, in Germany, and he shot at somebody who came through his door, and he was um, uh, put into a hospital for a number of weeks, and then decided he was perfectly sane. Then was decided he was perfectly sane, and went back to sea. Um, Some years after uh, the Herbert Fuller killings in 1896, 
some years after, in about 1905, he seemed to seems to have had some sort of incident and was put in a hospital in Sweden where he took a knife and attacked uh, one of his nurses, and that got him incarcerated for the rest of his life. And he apparently, and I was never able to find a death certificate, but it seems that he died in 1820 in Sweden, in, in, in uh, 1920 in Sweden in custody. So if he had a motive, it, it's that he was, you know, didn't have a motive, that he was crazy. If Thomas Bram, the first mate, had a motive, it was said that he wanted to uh, take over the ship and instead of going to South America, uh, make a hard right and go to Cuba, where the, uh, um, the the insurrection there was just getting started, and he would have sold his the supplies in the ship, which was a lot of lumber, uh, to the uh, Cuban revolutionaries. Uh, there was absolutely no indication that 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 he had any thoughts of that, but that was the closest to a motive that could come up that could be come up with uh, for him. And if the third possible person, Lester Monks, had a motive, it would have been that he had a thing for Laura Nash, the captain's wife, who was 37, uh, long married without children. Uh, um, not unattractive, shall we say, and they lived in, you know, they slept in cabins that were right next to each other, separated by a locked door, and it is conceivable that monks had a, a thing for, for Laura Nash. Possibly he went to her cabin before 2 o'clock in the morning uh, on July 14th, uh, 1896, and um, she rebuffed him, and maybe he then went the axe, went and got the axe and killed her, and then decided to kill everybody else in the cabin, the other two people, and then went back to his his uh, berth, his his, uh, his sleeping room, went to sleep, quote unquote, and then suddenly woke up and said he heard a scream, and then went up to get Thomas Bram on deck. Uh, none of these make too much sense none of these possible motives. And this is the, the great allure of this case for people who've written about it. Not that many, but some people have. I was going to ask, how, how much, uh, when you were researching this, how much, how good are the records and, and how much has been written yeah. about this? Well, the records are, are fantastic. Um, really? Yeah, because the trial, the trial testimony, and there were two trials, um, I think we got up to the Supreme Court reversal uh, when we were talking earlier. Um, the Supreme Court reversal uh, did not exonerate Bram, but it just invalidated the first trial and sent uh, sent the case back for a retrial uh, um, be before the circuit court in Boston. And again, Bram was convicted, but this time, through a change in federal law, he was the jury was given the option uh, of uh, guilty, not guilty, or guilty without capital punishment, and that's what he got without capital punishment, was sent off to what was supposed to be life in prison. But in fact, he got out after 15 years on parole, 
and six years later he was pardoned by President Woodrow Wilson, and then he went on to another a long life, another 30 years, most of them at sea with his own ship. Um, and again, I've gone on and <laughs> forgotten what you. No, what no, I was just curious about how good the uh, how good the record oh, yeah. keeping oh, that's right, was. Right. Um, so, in that second trial, how did yeah. uh, Double Jeopardy not play in? Um, it's not Double Jeopardy uh, because the, the court simply threw out some of the testimony and said there was essentially trial error and it goes back for a new trial. That's standard. Okay. Um, Double jeopardy would be if he was uh, um, acquitted and then somehow retried. And that Based on some him. new evidence or something. Well, new evidence maybe, but, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm, I only had a year and a half of law school. <laughs> <laughs> I can't, I, I can't fully explain it. But Gerard, it, it, I wasn't trying to put you on the spot. Yeah, you <laughs> I was, did. You I did. was just curious about it. Um, <laughs> I was, I'm, looking th- I'm looking through my notes, and I don't have an answer to the question. <laughs> but there was no question of double jeopardy. It, it was simply that the, 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 there was an error in the first trial, and Supreme Court said, have a redo without the testimony of that Halifax detective. Uh, which was the the the, uh, the source of the error. In any case, the records of the two trials, um, the two trials, and not not the Supreme Court reversal, that is that's online. But the two trials, the uh, record of the testimony, yeah, are on are in eight volumes, uh, large leather bound volumes on onion skin paper and small type, uh, at the Harvard. Uh, law school library. Well, I'm, I, Gerard, I'm not going to make you tell me who you think did it, but um, <laughs> what I uh, what I will do is give you an opportunity to let listeners know where they can dig more on. Uh, obviously, the book is yep. uh, a must read, not a gentleman's work by Gerard Capel. But Gerard, do you have um, a uh, a website or something where people can? Uh, connect to some of your other work and, and future endeavors? Sure. It's just GerardCopel.com is the website. It's G-E-R-A-R-D Copel, K-O-E P-P, as in Peter, E-L. And also I'm on Twitter, uh, Copel G, and uh, uh, I think there's a Facebook page, but you know, to be honest, I'm sort of trending away from Facebook these days as perhaps some other people are also, but Anyway, I, th- I think you're right about that. I think a lot yeah. of people are, and I've been thinking about it, but I just haven't, just haven't worked up the courage. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh, my God, what might I miss? Exactly. <laughs> anyway, Ger- uh, Gerard, it was a real pleasure uh, talking with you, and this is a fascinating uh, story. Great, Tom. Thanks. Take care. Thanks. Author uh, Gerard Coppell, he's a... Uh, former uh, news editor for CBS News and the author of Water for Gotham, Bond of Union, and City on a Grid, plus uh, having contributed to several other books. His new book is Not a Gentleman's Work, The Untold Story of Gruesome Murder at Sea and the Long Road to Truth. We're going to have a little old-time radio and a mystery of our own coming up uh, 
right after we take a short break. Let our broadcast partners squeeze in a few words. If you're streaming us, we have some messages as well. So don't touch that dial. Don't click that mouse. We'll be right back. Hello there, citizens. Darkwing Duck here. And every time I'm in Flint fighting crime, I always stop by the Tom Sumner program. Don't forget, stay dangerous. Darkwing Duck out. The Tom Sumner Program plays host to the best political roundtable on radio every Wednesday from 10 a.m. to noon. Armchair Politics features great commentary and analysis about the headlines from local, state, and national politics with an alumni of world-class pundits, plus quotes, tweets, and those weird and wacky stories we call The X-Files. If it's Wednesday, catch Armchair Politics on the Tom Sumner Program. Do you have feelings of inadequacy? Do you suffer from shyness? Do you sometimes wish you were more assertive? If you answered yes to any of these questions, ask your doctor or pharmacist about tequila. Tequila is the safe, natural way to feel better and more confident about yourself and your actions. Tequila can help ease you out of your shyness and let you tell the world that you're ready and willing to do just about anything. You'll notice the benefits of tequila almost immediately. And with a regimen of regular doses, you can overcome any obstacles that prevent you from living the life you want to live. Shyness and awkwardness will be a thing of the past, and you'll discover many talents you never knew you had. Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila may not be right for everyone. Women who are pregnant or nursing should not use tequila. However, women who wouldn't mind nursing or becoming pregnant are encouraged to try it. Side effects may include dizziness, nausea, vomiting, incarceration, erotic lustfulness, loss of motor control, loss of clothing, loss of money, loss of virginity, delusions of grandeur, table dancing, headache, dehydration, dry mouth, and a desire to sing karaoke and play all-night rounds of strip poker, truth or dare, and naked twister. Warning, the consumption of alcohol may make you think you're whispering when you're not. It's a major factor in dancing like a retard. may cause you to tell your friends over and over again that you're in love with them. Also may cause you to think you can sing. Alcohol may lead you to believe that ex-lovers are really dying for you to telephone them at four in the morning. Alcohol may make you think you can logically converse with members of the opposite sex without spitting. It may create the illusion that you are tougher, smarter, faster, and better looking than most people. And it may lead you to think people are laughing with you. Alcohol may cause pregnancy, and it also may be a major factor in getting your ass kicked. So what are you waiting for? Stop hiding and start living with tequila. Tequila! Those hands, no matter whose they are, can spread the germs of many common diseases. That's why I want you to realize how important it is to keep hands clean, to wash them regularly and always before meals with Life Boy which not only removes dirt, but helps to remove germs. Teach the children this habit. Form it yourself. Always use Life Boy for hands and face as well as the bath. America, your children have an amazing superpower. That's right. They can help save lives by simply washing their hands. Just 20 seconds of thorough hand washing after they've coughed or sneezed or been outside can help fight against the dastardly spread of germs. Armed with only soap and water and hands, your superhero can protect you, your family, and everyone out there in America land. Amazing! Find out more at coronavirus.gov. A message from the CDC and the Ad Council. The interest of goodwill. The Hoffman Beverage Company feels compelled to make this announcement. It's simply this. All Hoffman flavors have that happy taste, except sarsaparilla. We might as well come right out with it. We haven't quite hit that happy, carefree note in sarsaparilla. Now, please don't misunderstand us. Our Hoffman sarsaparilla is absolutely dependable. It's trustworthy. It's loyal. And many fine, upstanding citizens love it. 
but it just isn't what we call happy. You take our Hoffman orange, it's absolutely rollicking. Our lemon is almost giggly. Our black cherry and black raspberry are so bubbling with happiness, they dance in the glass. They all have natural flavor and famous Hoffman steady sparkle. We're sorry about Hoffman sarsaparilla. Why isn't it happy? Well, let me ask you, could you be happy if your name was This is were U.S. Senator Gary Peters, and you're listening to the Tom Sumner Program. Welcome to this presentation of the Comedy Spotlight on the Tom Sumner Program. from you folks out there in the television land. And we surely do thank you for, uh, for, uh, for all the cards and the letters uh, from you folks uh, out there in the television land. Uh, starting us off tonight is our trio, the Lemon Sisters. And girls, uh, what are you going to sing? We're going to sing, thank you for all those cards and letters you folks out there in television land. Lent. Lent. And after appropriate the number, uh, one and two and... Thank you for all those cards and letters, you folks in television land. We wonder where this television land is. Could it be a couple of miles from where Disneyland is? Turn off just a moment. I'm sorry. Hold it just a moment, please. Um, turn off the bubble machine. Please turn off the bubble. Uh, thank you, Lemon Sisters, for that lovely number. One of all, one of all. And now on with the show. Here's that man with a deep, deep voice, Larry Looper. Uh, Larry, what are you going to sing for us, Larry? I'm going to sing thank you for all those cards and letters you I'm sorry about. that number has been taken. Well, I'll sing the funny old hills then. Good. Come on, hand the two, hand the two. Hold it just a moment. Uh, the bubbles don't come till the end of the program. Uh, turn off the bubbles. Um, uh, thank you, Larry. Uh, thank you, Larry Looper, for that wonderful number. Uh, now I would like to play a short instrumental medley based on the names of girls. Uh, one and two and... No. No, that's not it. Thank you, 
brass section, Stony Stone Dwell, to sing, please. Please, bend your little ears to my plea. What is the matter with that machine? Here, hit it with your horn. Hit it. Here, stick your mouthpiece in it there. A wonderful, a wonderful. And now, on with the show. Here's our champagne lady, Alice Lean. Alice is going to sing Moonlight and the Shadows. One and two and... Ladies and gentlemen, for the first time in 25 years, my puffing finger is caught in my cheek. Will you give me a hand there, Alice? Here, pull my arm. No, that the other arm. Just pull it. Pull it. That's it. Moonlight and shadows And you in my arms And a melody in the bamboo tree My sweet Even in shadows Hold it! Somebody stop the bubble machine! The whole ballroom is lathering up with bubbles. And now I can't see the cameras. Here, let me set the accordion down on the stage. And I'll try and fix that. Bear with us, folks. Just a moment, please. Gee, the time is running out, and we haven't even played the polka. Wait a minute, boys. I didn't mean... Hold it, Alice. Don't polka on my accordion. She dead, it was a whirlitzer. Hit the theme, boys. And so it's good night from all the champagne. Where is the cameras? There's so many bubbles I can't. And so, friends, we help. The whole ballroom is shoving off the sea. Sure is a clear night, ain't it, Captain? Yep, matey. These are the kind of nights when the sea plays tricks on you. Yeah, I recollect one night off Singapore. Tricks, I see. Like that mirage off the port bow now. What? See it there? Kind of bubbly looking in the moonlight. Oh, yeah. Yeah. If I didn't know better, I'd say it looks like the Aragon Ballroom. Yeah. Yeah. That's a catchy chant you're humming there, Captain. What is it? Oh, I don't know. It just keeps running through my head. <laughs> uh, let's go below and catch a little shut eye. Okay. This was another comedy spotlight on the Tom Sumner program. Ever 
love our special place When I go to the movies Girl, and the story is you When they're right off in the sunset I'm the guy left behind
Hi, I'm Alexander Zanjic. Don't touch that dial. You're listening to Tom Sumner. Tom Sumner. 